Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this second of three podcasts is Dr. Robert Lawrence, who is the director of the Center for a Livable Future and professor in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, where he also holds appointments in other departments and has a long and distinguished career, not only in medicine, but in environmental health. Bob, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. When we talk about uh, antibiotics, it's not something people ordinarily think about as being part of the farming process or being part of the food supply, but the antibiotics are a very important player. How has that come to be the case? Well, uh, it is true they are a very important part of the food supply and very important part of uh, human health. Eighty percent of all antibiotics made in the United States today are used in the animal husbandry world. Um, the vast majority of them are used as growth promoters and as prophylaxis, prevention of disease because of the squalid conditions under which the animals are raised. Now, uh, we've known since um, Alexander Fleming gave his Nobel acceptance speech in 1945, where he warned that indiscriminate use of penicillin would lead to selecting out of resistant organisms. And his prescience has sadly really come home to roost. We now have a huge problem of antibiotic resistance among the bacteria that not only are pathogens for animals, but more importantly, are pathogens for humans. Can you describe how that resistance process takes place? You take uh, an E. coli or a salmonella or a campylobacter or a staphylococcus, and spontaneous uh, mutations occur that equip a tiny number of the bacteria with the ability to survive in the presence of antibiotics. Then the antibiotics are given and kill off all the susceptible bacteria. And the surviving antibiotic-resistant bacteria that have these mutations in their genes uh, then expand to fill that ecologic niche. Um, We also know from recent work from a group at Boston University that, in fact, exposure to low-dose antibiotics, while not lethal to bacteria, create the conditions in which spontaneous mutations occur more frequently. It's almost like exposing them to low-dose radiation. There are more breaks in the DNA chain. There are more opportunities for mutations. And among those mutations, of course, many are fatal, but some confer antibiotic resistance. So we have a situation where we're actually, by using low-dose antibiotics as growth promoters, selecting out the resistant ones, and also creating more opportunities for mutation. And how serious are these disease-resistant bacteria? Uh, they are becoming more and more uh, I'm sorry, Yes, the antibiotic-resistant. Well, uh, the CDC reports that last year uh, about 19,000 Americans died of MRSA, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Now, a lot of MRSA did arise from uh, use of methicillin and various other synthetic penicillins in hospital settings, so-called nosocomial spread, where um, one patient infected, treated with a potent antibiotic, 
selecting out a resistant organism, and then that resistant organism being carried either usually by contact rather than airborne, but nonetheless, uh, many people are aware of the big campaigns now to get doctors and nurses to wash their hands between every patient. Well, that's a very good idea because that's how a lot of spread has occurred. But in recent years, uh, including some research uh, supported by my center, we've demonstrated that a lot of the MRSA is arising from the misuse of antibiotics in swine facilities or in cattle facilities. And then the people who are in contact, either airborne or direct contact with those animals, contract the disease. A study published uh, just a year ago by Lance Price, and uh, I think he had 23 collaborators. It was a huge study, 18 countries on four continents. And they took 4,000 distinguished, uh, distinguishable individual uh, strains of one type of Staph aureus called CC398. And they looked through whole organism genotyping. In other words, they took every strand of DNA in that bacterium and figured out the sequence of the base pairs and so forth. And what they were able to do was to go back sort of like a forensic uh, or archaeologic dig uh, and piece together what the origins of those bugs were. They started out as methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus in humans. They were introduced into swine herds in Europe, probably by animal workers and so on. Then in the swine herd, while under constant exposure to low-dose antibiotics, they gradually acquired through mutation more and more resistant genes. And then the resistant form of that Staph aureus was transmitted back to the human population. So uh, all the critics of the uh, public health people who have been pointing out the dangers of misuse of antibiotics in, a in animal husbandry uh, keep saying, well, where's the smoking gun? Where have you ever found an individual human patient with a bug that you can track back to an animal source? And uh, Lance Price and his colleagues have really provided us that smoking gun. Is it safe to say that the mutations outpace our ability to come up with ways of dealing with them? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, one of the sad realities in the big uh, pharmaceutical industry today is that the return on investment for new forms of antibiotics is uh, relatively limited because the typical patient receives a one-week or a 10-day course, and the blockbuster drugs are the ones that somebody has to take daily for the rest of their lives. So the amount of investment, the amount of new drug discovery, the number of new antibiotics has fallen off sharply at the very time when most of our current uh, array of antibiotics have had significant resistant uh, bacteria emerge. How significant are the antibiotics in promoting growth? They, uh, there was an interesting study done by Purdue, who produces uh, large numbers of broilers. Um, they took about uh, four or five uh, hen houses, broiler houses, so roughly 100,000 birds. And they did usual practice, mixing low-dose antibiotics with the feed. And then they had about 
100,000 birds that were raised on another farm without antibiotics. They found that uh, time to market was increased about a day and a half when you withdrew the antibiotics. So it went from 46 to 47 and a half days. And the death rate, the mortality rate in the flock increased slightly. So they said, they, they released these data and they said it proves that we have to continue using low dose antibiotics because it, the birds get to market faster and the few of them die uh, in, the, in the farm. One of our fellows, and uh, working with a colleague who's a professor of economics at Hopkins, obtained the data from Purdue, and they did a simple cost-effectiveness analysis. And they found out that when, in fact, you added in the cost of the antibiotics, uh, you actually came out about a penny a bird better without the antibiotics. And then they had a terrible time getting that paper published because um, the reviews kept coming back, uh, obviously influenced by people and the poultry scientists who were very wed to big ag. And uh, finally it was published. And I think people now realize that the uh, amount of benefit of the low-dose antibiotics is pretty minimal and, in fact, not cost-effective. Well, one could imagine the, the antibiotic manufacturers being wedded to their use, but why wouldn't companies like Purdue have recognized this a long time ago and just stop using them then? Well, they, uh, there was sufficient uh, suspicion that maybe they were not necessary, and there was sus sufficient criticism of the misuse of antibiotics beginning back in the early 2000s that uh, Purdue carried out this little uh, randomized prospective clinical trial, if you would. And <clears throat> there's still now um, consumer concern that is actually driving the situation more than economics. So a number of the poultry producers market their product as antibiotic-free. Uh, it hasn't yet happened in the swine industry. It hasn't yet happened in the cattle industry. But so maybe the public pressure will start to force the companies yeah. to change. Combination of public pressure and FDA enforcement, because uh, the FDA, uh, back in 1977, issued a ruling that penicillin and tetracycline should no longer be used uh, for growth promotion. And there was an advisory with the threat of uh, penalizing continued use. Nothing ever happened. The FDA simply did not do a thing. So the National Resources Defense Council, NRDC, sued the FDA last year, and they won in court. And the FDA is now, contrary to all logic, it seems to me, uh, contesting that suit uh, rather than going ahead and saying, okay, the science is clear. The science has been clear for a long time. This is not an appropriate use of antibiotics. This is a scarce resource, and uh, yet the story is still unfolding. It, what's to keep um, some poultry manufacturer, for example, from putting antibiotics in the food supply for the animals and then still labeling them antibiotic-free? Is there enough oversight over the labeling and actual raising of the animals to know that there are safeguards? 
Uh, that's a really, really important question uh, because the food inspection arm of USDA uh, is really strapped. Uh, in fact, there was a new ruling passed last year by USDA that allowed the line speed of poultry processing to go from 140 birds a minute to 175 birds a minute. And to replace the USDA inspectors with self-inspection by the poultry manufacturers. So it doesn't take a lot of uh, analysis to think that that's not a very safe system. So I think that uh, undoubtedly there is some uh, misrepresentation going on. Uh, but just in the news in the last few weeks has been the fact that the Russian Federation has refused to import American meat that is uh, tainted with ractopamine. Ractopamine is another growth promoter. Um, so more and more openness and transparency, I think, is going to be the ultimate solution. It seems hard to imagine that a country like Russia would turn back our meat because of perceived contamination, but it, it shows how little is known about the food supply and what the, the industry is willing to do to promote yes. growth. It's really a remarkable set of circumstances. Now, I know the antibiotic resistance is a, a real problem in that, that it gets transmitted throughout the population in lots of ways. But I know that Johns Hopkins has done studies on people who live near the facilities where these animals are being raised, and they, are, they have particular vulnerability. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, one of the common bacteria infecting poultry is uh, Campylobacter and Campylobacter can cause human disease. Uh, in a study that was done by uh, Ellen Sobergeld and uh, Jay Graham uh, about seven or eight years ago, they went over onto the eastern shore where we grow about 700 million uh, broilers a year. 700 million 700 million. Uh, total number of chickens produced, broilers produced in the United States today are about 8 billion. So... One million broilers per hour, 24-7, 52 weeks a year, are being raised, killed, and consumed in the United States. That's a huge number of animals, a huge amount of antibiotics that are used, and therefore a huge problem of resistance. So what uh, Graham and Silbergeld found was that if you uh, uh, cultured the birds themselves or the chicken litter on the floor of the barn, you found uh, antibiotic-resistant Campylobacter species way up in the high 80 90% range. Culturing the chicken workers, you found carrier state, people who are not sick but had the bacteria in their nares or on their skin, with antibiotic-resistant Campylobacter, about 70%. And then you go into the home of these poultry workers and you culture children, spouses, other people have nothing directly to do with the poultry industry. And they had a step-down lower rate, but something, I, don't, I can't remember the precise number, 40% perhaps. And then you go out into the community that has absolutely no uh, contact and it's down in the 10 or 15% range. So a very clear relationship of contact exposure, secondary exposure, and so forth. 
Well, I appreciate you joining us and talking about this really important issue, and it's nice to hear that the public and government officials are paying more attention. So thank you again. You're welcome. Pleasure our, to be here. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lawrence, Director of the Center for a Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter that gets dispatched, lots of legislative updates on what's happening with food policy, and, of course, a list of other podcasts that we've recorded with outstanding visitors who have come to the Rudd Center. Thank you.